Well, it's a great privilege to open the Bible for our remaining moments uh, together in worship. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We are exploring the parables of the kingdom together. It's a start to a study of seven different parables that kind of divide this uh, section up. Each parable comes with it a, uh, a secret, uh, not some sort of esoteric thing that we can't grasp, but as we have learned the word uh, secret, the secrets of the kingdom that are revealed to believers are uh, just what wasn't known in the past, which has been made known to us by the Holy Spirit through the illuminating work of the Spirit. When you were born again, your darkened eyes were made to see, and uh, we see things in these parables that... An unbeliever can't see, at least by conviction. Uh, We believe that God has revealed um, truth to us, and the truth found in these parables are uh, lessons for eternity, lessons moving towards the end of all things, the apocalyptic ending that is promised and foretold in Scripture uh, are are captured in these parables, Um, time and and life are, is moving, and the older I get, it's moving more and more quickly, it seems. It's going in a direction, and these parables tell us why we're here and where life is going and why things are wrong and how things can be made right. And um, they were given as um, really a two-edged sword to the crowd as Jesus preached them. He's in his third discourse at the Sea of Galilee on the beach, and then the crowds are pressing in at such a level that he goes out in the boat. He says, push me out a little farther offshore. And it's the amphitheater of the the word moving along the waves and to the hearts of those who are receptive and also the word of God that is being rejected by those who are confused by the parables. They're unable to discern and see what is there. And Jesus is preaching from a boat and preaching parables that we can understand and, and see. The last verse that I preached last time to introduce this section was verse 9. He who has ears, let him hear. That's the question. That's the question that parables beg. Do you have ears to hear? He's been preaching the bare naked truth of um, straightforward gospel, answering accusations against him. He's been called the rebel, the hypocrite, the pagan, the sociopath, the Satanist, doing miracles by the power of Beelzebul. He is answering all those questions and preaching the kingdom directly. But as he did so, hearts were closing. He was in the synagogue and the religious arena. And now he's moved out into the natural realm off the Sea of Galilee. And he's just preaching Parables, parables that he hopes are received, but as he defines um, for us as those which will also be rejected. Parables that come as a blessing to those who will see clearly what's being spoken, and they come as somewhat of a curse to those who are being hardened by truth. We're going to see this. This is Uh, Sort of a confusing time for the disciples. They actually are wondering why Jesus has changed things up. Why the switch up? Why are you now preaching in parables? You were preaching straightforwardly. Now you're preaching in parables. What's going on here? And we see them asking this question in verse 10 of chapter 13. It says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? 
And he answered them, verse 11, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. This obviously would have been a time away from um, their public meeting. The disciples have a private time with Jesus, and they're saying, why are you preaching this way? They understood what a parable was as a story, as an illustration, a common life event that is parable. It's thrown alongside. That's what that word means, thrown alongside a truth to, uh, to make it simple but and clear. But in that clarifying process, an unbeliever might understand the moral that's being mentioned. He might understand um, the story that's being told. He might even see it as significant truth, but it's not taken to the heart by saving faith, and thus it falls away. It falls away. This um, teaching and study on the meaning of a parable. Why did you teach this way and what do the parables mean is all in the context of the first parable of the seven and that's the parable of the soils. It's important for you to understand that Jesus is explaining why he's teaching in parables and what they mean in the context of this first parable, which is a foundation parable to the rest. It's sort of the key that unlocks the rest to understand the dynamics that are going on in the heart because the parable of the soils, as we learned last week, is the seed of the word of God that goes out All all we can do is sow the seed, and then there's going to be four different reactions or four different responses determined by the heart condition of the hearer. The seed goes into the hard path, and it lays on top, and it's snatched away by the birds. It never even penetrates the heart. It's what most of the world does with the Word of God. The Word of God's going out all the time, pulsating through missions, through media, through preaching, through pulpits, through the Bible, through just the Bible distribution, and that seed's going, and it's just falling on hard paths and being snatched away satanically all the time. We're going to unpack that next week, but the second soil is the um, the rocky soil, which is the limestone layer that's underneath uh, the shallow layer where the seed goes in, but it can't go deep with roots and it can't lay roots so that it doesn't stand up when life gets hard. When the trials come, everything just dies off. The scorching heat um, makes any kind of supposed life wither immediately. This is a person who is a superficial Christian in name only. It's most of the evangelical culture that says, I know Christ, I want Christ, but they've got no root system whatsoever to sustain life. So they're not really a Christian. The third soil is the thorny soil, which appears to have deep roots. This is the deep-rooted unbeliever, where it looks like the soil is going deep and the roots are going in, but it's thorny, and there's all of these worldly shoots that come up and through, and they choke out the Word of God and the life and heart of a person that looks like a believer, but then they worry themselves outside of the faith. They were never true believers, but the anxieties take over. And the worries and pressures choke out the life that's there. And we're going to look at that. And then finally, the fourth soil is the seed where the word of God goes in deeply, um, creates a root system. And then there are 30, 60, and 100-fold manifestations of life. And that's a bounty in any category. It's not good, better, best. It's just a lot of life is being produced in the life of a true believer at varying levels. Uh, Three soils, unbelievers. One soil, believer. Everybody is in one of those four categories all the time. And it all has to do with them reacting to the word of God, either being repulsed by it or embracing it. 
That's the dividing line. The word of God is always creating that juncture, that crossroads of belief and unbelief. And Jesus is saying, I'm giving the word of God in this dress, in the dress of a parable, and it's creating this dividing line. I'm making it as clear and as simple as possible and as palatable as possible for someone to eat of it and believe in it. And yet they're going to reject it unless they have saving faith. And so really the first principle that we're going to learn is the principle of why people reject the word of God. That's what the first principle is here that we're learning from. Verse 11 again Jesus answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets. The secrets is the word mysterion, um, the revelation of the parable, the secret of the parable, something that was hidden but now made revealed and clear, the clarity of this, of the kingdom of God. But to them it has not been given. A believer is going to understand, an unbeliever who's naturally minded is going to reject it. Um, Again, 1 Corinthians 2.7 might be a cross-reference to um, what I'm talking about. Paul said, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages, ages of the, um, for our glory. Ephesians 3.4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. It's, it's the revelation of Christ, what was not made known to the sons of men in other generation, as it has now been revealed to his holy prophets Holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It's a mystery that is now revelatory. Look at verse 12. How amplified does this become in the life of someone? It says, for to the one who has, more will be given and will have an inheritance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. There's exponential growth in the life of a believer. You have a little and more will be given. For an unbeliever, they have a little and, and they reject it and more is, to, more is taken away. There's a digression. It has been compared to the idea of foreign language. Uh, who studied and learned a foreign language in high school? And, you know, can you say it now? Well, you use it or you lose it. And it's like when you have some, if you're using it and you're growing in it and you perhaps move to that country with that language, it becomes second nature. But if you don't use it, even if you're taught at a certain point uh, that language, if you don't use it, you just lose it. It goes away. It's like going to a museum where you have no context for what's going on or culture or history or anything. And the person, the curator is explaining the artwork and describing it. And the more that he says, the more lost you become. I know that's only my experience, not your experience, but I thought I would share that with you so you would feel sorry for me and feel better about yourself. Just kidding. All right, so, but it is. It's more and more or less and less dynamics. People are ignoring truth. It's been said people are sweating themselves to hell because they work so hard to get there. Why? Because they're bound in sin. They're lost. They're confused. They don't understand the judgment of the word of God that is acting upon their own hearts as they reject truth. It's a judicial act of blinding, but it's also mercy. And I want to emphasize that the Lord is giving truth and parables at this stage in ministry because they have been hardened in their hearts, because they're rejecting truth. And in one sense, he wants to make it palatable. In another sense, he wants to protect people from the potency of the truth. To just give pearls before swine where they're just rejecting outwardly. To just force feed truth in a clear, naked, and direct way. 
can harden the heart just like a hot sun can harden the clay as opposed to softening it. A person that's rejecting, that's hearing truth, force-fed, um, can be harmed by that. And Jesus is mitigating against that hardening process. So if you're taking notes, seven parables revealing seven secrets. And this is secret number one. This is a revelation for, that believers see from this parable, from this teaching in general. He's teaching um, the parable of the soils, but he's also teaching um, the why he preached in parables and what it means, what's going on beneath the surface. And the first principle I want to draw from this study is this. We are learning the cause and cure of spiritual blindness and deafness. Why are people blind and deaf to the seed of the word of God going into their hearts? Why are they blind and deaf? And we need to know why. If we're going to persevere in ministry and be the seed sowers, we're going to be the farmers, then you need to know why people reject truth. Why do people not see what we see or not hear what we hear when we say what we say from the word of God? That's foundational for this study and foundational for ministry in life in this world. We live in a sin-cursed world with humanity divided into one of four categories, one of four soils, one of four heart conditions. Really, it's two. It's those who are unbelieving and those who are believing. But what are the causes for blindness? Well, we find the cause here in our text, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. Jesus said, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their eyes, they can barely hear and their ears, they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Stop there. This is a large quotation from Isaiah 6. It's a quotation that we find in Isaiah 6. And then we're going to find it again here on the lips of Jesus to define his evangelistic ministry. We're also going to see at the end of Acts, in Acts 20. Eight, that Paul defined his ministry, which really defines the ministry of the local church. It's all defined by this text. And it's a discouraging one because this text is kind of opening up the hearts of everyone and showing us the fallen human condition in the hearts of everyone in our world. It's a fallen human condition. It has been called in theology total depravity. Total depravity. To be totally depraved means to be thoroughly sinful. It means sin touches every part of your life, your mind, your will, and your emotions, your motives, your actions, your attitudes. You are born a sinner. We're born in sin, and then we choose to sin. We're born naturally minded. Before we come to faith in Christ, We are under the dominion of sin. We are under the curse of sin. We are at enmity with God. We are at war with God, shaking our fist at God because our hearts are sinful. They're desperately wicked. God destroyed the world because of the human fallen condition the first time by flood. It only took six chapters of our Bible to get to God deciding to destroy the world. That represented a lot of years and 
um, millennia, but in time, but God destroyed the world. He destroyed the world because everyone was sinning always and constantly. He destroyed the world for sin. Now, the total depravity of man doesn't mean that you are as bad as you could be in every category that you live or are. It just means that on varying degrees, you are sin-cursed or touched by the taint of sin um, in your life at varying levels. And you would be different um, from person to person in you know, seated here in the auditorium for what you sin and the way you sin and your proclivities compared to somebody else. But we're all in the mud puddle. We're all encompassed by sin. As a believer, you're no longer under the dominion of sin. You're no longer under the, the power of sin, though we can fall back into that um, enslavement if we let ourselves go. We have the Holy Spirit to fight sin, to kill sin, to persevere, to repent of sin, and ultimately the promise that we will be forever delivered from the influence of sin once we are glorified in heaven. Your sin debt has been paid for. The penalty of sin is gone in your life as a believer, but the principle of sin in your life is still hanging around, is it not, in our human fallen flesh? And it is a total comprehensive sin um, experience in our lives. Even as believers, we have to fight that sin daily. But this is a description of a person who has fallen still, who is not believing in the seed of the word of God, not believing in truth. They are rendered blind and deaf by their fallen condition and by their immoralities. And Isaiah's prophecy is explaining to us the three reasons why people reject truth, why people reject Jesus, why people will not believe. You say, what a depressing text. Yes, it's meant to depress us a bit so that we can see how good we have it because we've been redeemed from this. You have to know the bad news before you can celebrate the good news in your life. Let's just go to Isaiah 6. You can turn there. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase up to this um, section um, Isaiah is uh, Isaiah five is where Isaiah the prophet is. Um, he's he's warning the southern kingdom of Israel. He's warning Judah of the um, coming Babylonian captivity, where Nebuchadnezzar in five eighty six was going to swoop in and scoop up um, a large population from Judah and take them into Babylonian captivity for seventy years. It's foreboding, but it, and it was sobering, but it was warranted as judgment that was dooming and looming and coming because all of the sin that the southern kingdom was involved in, idolatry, immoralities, debauchery, sin. There's nothing new under the sun. It's what our country is involved in today. It's the paganism of idolatry. It's looking at what you should not look at, feeding on what you should not feed upon, doing what you should not do, immoralities and worshiping it and worshiping yourself by worshiping that. And Isaiah is saying judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And Uzziah, the king that was on the throne during that time, dies. He drops dead. And so their king dies. And so Isaiah goes as the prophet of God into the temple of God. And as one king dies, one greater king is revealed. And it is God, very God, who is filling this temple in a vision where Isaiah sees the train of the robe filling the temple. The foundations are shaking. The thresholds are shaking. Smoke is filling because the worship of the one true God is 
taking place in his experience as he sees the seraphims flying around, six wings, two they cover their feet, two they cover their face, with two they fly, worshiping the Lord in constant worship, saying, God, you are holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God who is very God, transcendent, glorious, powerful, sovereign, ruling, while southern kingdom Judah is in sin. Their sin is represented by the holiest man, Isaiah, who's standing there saying, I am totally depraved. He pronounces the woe judgment now from the southern kingdom to himself saying, woe is me, damned am I. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He's disintegrating, pronouncing this judgment upon himself, saying, I deserve immediate disintegrating death and judgment because I'm a man of unclean lips and I've dwelt among a people of unclean lips. God doesn't leave him there. The angel swoops down and grabs off the altar um, with tongs, a hot burning coal, and places the coal upon his lips as a representation of redemption where Isaiah is made clean. Just as we were made clean by the shed blood of Christ, Isaiah is standing in grace at that point. And from this throne that is exalted, God speaks down to Isaiah, to whoever will listen, and says, whom will go for us? Whom shall I send? Isaiah stands up, um, being, being made right by God. He's willing to say, here am I, send me. I'm willing to go. I'm willing to be your prophet. I'm willing to speak the truth. I'm willing to pronounce rescue. And what does God say back to him? He says these words, you will indeed hear, but never understand. When you preach, they're going to Hear you, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. The audience will not, will see, but they won't perceive. The hearts will grow dull. The ears will barely hear. The eyes will close. I mean, all of this is judgment. Isaiah, in other words, you're going to have a fruitful ministry, but it's a fruitful ministry in a way that you did not think you were signing up for. You're preaching judgment. You're preaching the truth and people are closing off to it. And this is part of my plan. How heavy is that? What's amazing to me is that Jesus picks up this mantle as his ministry. So it's not just Isaiah, you're going to have a rough road. Jesus himself is saying, this is my preaching path. And by the way, John's gospel says that the one who is God enthroned in the tabernacle before Isaiah is Jesus himself. Isn't that incredible? If you look over at John 12, um, Jesus in verse 32 was talking about being lifted up. When he's lifted up on the cross, he's going to draw people to himself. He's talking about the kind of death he was going to die. And verse 34 says the crowd was skeptical about that, saying that um, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. In other words, Messiah can't be killed. Um, How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who's the Son of Man? And Jesus warns them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk in the light, unless the darkness overtakes you. That's a, a call for them to believe while they still have the light. They can become sons of light. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. This is the ministry of Jesus. The teachings rejected, the miracles are being rejected. Where does Jesus find comfort? Where does he find the logic for being who he is? Messiah on earth, revealing himself as Messiah, teaching the word of God. He goes to Isaiah chapter six. Therefore, or he, I'm sorry, verse 38 
so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. This is the human condition. They will blind their eyes. They will harden their heart. They will not see. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Whose glory? The Lord Jesus' glory. And spoke of him. Isaiah was speaking, he was referencing Jesus. Jesus gave this commission. Isaiah took it up and then Jesus as Messiah here on earth is taking up this very mission. Preaching to people who will not respond in faith. It's crazy. Why are we even here? We have a message that's potent and powerful. And we have people who are sitting there in their hearts positioned to reject it. And this is the level of their rejection. Point one, verse 14, showing, revealing the level of of, uh, depravity in a person's heart. Verse 14, man is incapacitated to receive truth. Incapacitated. That's what verse 14 is saying. That's the condition. It says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You're incapacitated. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. They see the logic of truth. They're compelled by the storyline of redemption history. I mean, the Bible is one of the most popular books that's ever been printed, widely sold, like the largest bestseller. People read it, but they don't believe it by conviction. They hear it, but they don't hear it with spiritual ears. They see it, but they don't see Jesus with spiritual eyes. They're incapacitated because they're, they're dead in their transgressions and sin. In Religious Affections, Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s, he wrote this. said, it is possible that a man might know how to interpret all the types, parables, enigmas, and all the allegories in the Bible and not have one beam of spiritual light in his mind because he has not made the least degree of that spiritual sense of the holy beauty of divine things which has been spoken of and may see nothing of this kind of glory in anything contained in any of these mysteries or any part of scripture. How does this help us? Well, understanding I think that people are incapacitated, natural, dull, in a stupor, um, disabled from exercising saving faith, apart from the grace of God, understanding this cause This is the cause of why people don't believe. Understanding this can at least give us some measure of comfort that when we witness, it is all part of God's ultimate plan, even when people reject. It was all part of God's plan. This is what Isaiah was equipped with. This is what the Messiah, Jesus on earth, was saying his ministry was all about. It's what the Apostle Paul would say his ministry Um, marching orders were, I'm giving the word of God and people are poised to reject it. Because man is, first and foremost, incapacitated to believe. Secondly, man is incorrigible when confronted with truth. Incorrigible, what what does incorrigible mean? Um, It means someone is not able to be corrected, improved upon, or reformed. They're irreformable. So they're incapacitated, 
They, they don't even have the right eyes or ears to really grasp what's going on spiritually. And then secondly, there's a, a sense of their, their own status is, is, is irreformable. They're, they're unchangeable. I mean, you can sing and dance, you can give people literature, you can present the Word of God with analogies, illustrations, humor, make it compelling, but you can't change a person's heart no matter what you do. You can't do it. You can't energize someone spiritually with anything that you do. They are incorrigible. It says, verse 15, for this people's heart has grown dull. And with their eyes, they can barely hear. And with their, ear, with, with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed. This is the picture of a deathbed scene. It's a sad state and you've lost loved ones and watched people's breathing become shallow and their hearing becomes deaf and they can't hear anymore. And then their eyes are dimming and they're, they're closing their eyes to move on to the next life. This is the sad state of a person who is incorrigible. It's digressive. They can barely hear, barely see. And where they might have been sharper in an earlier stage of life, they've become dull. Now they are not receptive to anything. You say, what do you do with someone who's in this state? What do you do with someone who's bound up in immorality or, you know, sinful pornography? Or how do you pull somebody out of their sad condition? Do you give them more and more truth? Well, we need to see and follow the pattern of Jesus. He was giving parables. He was giving truth still, but he wasn't force feeding it. I think it's important for us not to force feed people who are in rebellion. You don't want to harden them up by their rejection. You want to recognize that God has given you his Holy Spirit, though, to discern where people are. And when you give truth, you'll see reactions by what they say. And more importantly, by what they do or don't do in light of the word of God. So we give the word of God and then you measure their response. And on a case-by-case basis, you evaluate what you're supposed to do next. There were times where Jesus taught and there were times where Jesus went away. And we have to give the word of God and we have to measure when and how we do it. We can't be pragmatists who say, oh, if I give them enough, then that'll, that'll make the tipping point. We need to navigate um, exactly how we're supposed to do it. And sometimes people need to be disciplined corporately and for, um, formally in church discipline for restoration. Matthew 18 and Galatians 6. Well, the first two categories, they're incapacitated, they're incorrigible, and then finally they're intractable, intractable. Verse 15, B, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Um, They won't believe. They have decided not to hear the truth. And what becomes a private decision oftentimes becomes a public decision. If they heard the truth, if they were open, if they weren't deciding against the truth, then they would, the word turn, and I would heal them. That word turn, epistrepho, means they would repent. If they would only do that, but they're deciding against the truth. What was sharp has become dull. What was open now is intractable. What was private becomes public defiance and open rejection. And if they would turn, they would be healed. So why have we gone through this text this morning? What a depressing text to go through this morning. The fallen human condition. The mission of giving the gospel to people who will not hear, incapacitated, incorrigible, intractable. What are we doing? 
Well, we're diagnosing what's wrong. I think it is so important to diagnose what's wrong at the level that Scripture diagnoses it as wrong in someone's heart. When you're um, disease-ridden or stricken with uh, chronic pain, and you know what you're going through where nobody else really does, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor looks at the scan, he looks at the MRI, he looks at the test, and says, everything looks perfectly clean and clear. There's really nothing that I can say is wrong with you, but you walk away and you know something is still wrong. How depressing is that? Where there is actually some relief, by contrast, when the scan shows something, something that's wrong a measure that can be taken, a medicine that can be applied, an approach to your life, a lifestyle change that will actually give you help and relief, or at the very least, the reassurance that something is wrong and it's a hard path that now you are called to endure. That's a better situation. And that's the situation that a text like this puts us in. Why won't someone believe? Why won't the seed penetrate? Well, it's because of man's total depravity. Man is given over to sin. That is the cause for what is going wrong. People work very hard to blame everything that is going wrong on in the world and in the lives of other, others with anything except defining it for what it really is. People will not use the word sin. How many times do you hear the word sin on the news feed? How, do you, how many times do you read it on, on, in the news articles, on any news station? People are not blaming what's going wrong on the real reason for why it's going wrong. They're blaming it with any other thing as a substitute. What are some of the substitutions people put in for the word sin? Well, here's a way to put it. It's uh, if we had more ofs or if we had less ofs. Let's just fill in the blank. Oh, if we had more money, if we had more, if the economy was better, if we had more food, if we had more laws. If we, here's one. If we had better gas prices. All right. I believe in that one. If we had more compassion, if we had more education, more health care, more of a lifespan, more technology, more government. What about if we had less of certain things? If we had less hate, less bigotry, less violence, less guns, fewer guns, uh, fewer laws, less technology, less poverty, then all would be right with the world. Is that true? No. It's ignoring the true cause of what is going wrong with everybody in the world. What's wrong with society is sin. The epidemic is not HIV, it is S-I-N. The pandemic is not all the different dynamics that people are fearing in our fear culture. It is the one thing that we should be sad about and be concerned with, and that is sin. No. Perfect love has no fear. We're outside of the penalty of sin in our own lives, but we're still sobered by the reality of it and what it does to people, how it wrecks people, how it distorts people's thinking to see Christ. Isaiah defined his mission and ministry in terms of understanding the fallen human condition Jesus did it as well, and Paul did it as well. In Acts chapter 28, I'll just reference it quickly. Verse 23, Paul's under house arrest. He's at the end of his ministry kind of career. It's the last couple of years. He's in Rome. He's got the probation anklet on. I mean, he's in house arrest. He's under his own um, provision, it says. He's providing for himself. People can come and go, and he can just stay there and preach the gospel. And that's what he's doing at this later stage in ministry. It's Acts 28. 
And um, in verse 23, you have Jews who are showing up. He's in Rome, but they're the Jewish leaders in the synagogues. And this is a way for him to give them one final gospel presentation that they will reject. It says, when they appointed a day for him, verse 23, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. Talk about Paul. He's so in seed, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced. Some people believe, right? You have that category, one of four. They're the believers, they're the good soil. By what he said, but others disbelieve. This is the other three soils. They're disbelieving. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. So they, they get mad at this statement. Paul quotes Isaiah 6 to say, what is going on? It says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to our fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Verse 26, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You'll indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts has grown dull and their eyes with their eyes, they can barely, ears they can barely hear. And with their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Again, quoting this as kind of the philosophy of ministry for why people are rejecting. Well, what happens? Verse 28, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. So Paul is saying, look, obviously you were supposed to not believe, so I'm going to the Gentiles. They will listen. Verse 30, he lived there two years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He's just wide open. These are Paul's commissioning orders. This is what he clung to. This was his persevering um, mantra. And without this anchor, rejection over time in your life will become debilitating. You have to understand that the fallen human condition is what's wrong with someone who is rejecting truth. It's the why. The kingdom of God is explained here through this parable of the sower and the four soils. And it's, explain, it's explaining to us that truth, when it's rejected, is because there is a soil that is not receptive. That's it. We are the soil. We throw the seed, and it goes in the ground or on top of the ground. And whatever happens at that point happens. I can want grass to grow, but until it started raining this summer, no grass was coming. It wasn't going to happen. It just was those seeds that I threw out there, and I throw them out in the old style. I'm not formulaic. It's like, woo, here it goes. It's either going to hit or not hit. And that's all up to the Lord, and that's the picture here. We're understanding why. The cause of people not believing is their own sin. That begs a cure. And Isaiah 6 references the cure even back then, verse 11. Um, Isaiah's going, how long, O Lord? You know, if people are not going to believe, how long, O Lord? And the Lord says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, and land is in a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, captivity. And forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Verse 13, here's the remnant believers, though. And though a tenth remain, the tenth the group in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. There's this stump, there's this tenth, there's this picture of a remnant who will believe. The cause for blindness and deafness is always sin, but the cure for blindness and deafness is always something else, and that is grace. And I need to preach grace before we get out of here today. The cause is sin, 
And you got to know how bad it is before you can celebrate how good it becomes when you become a believer. This is what you were saved from. You were incapacitated. You were incorrigible. You were intractable. And then God's grace intervened in your life and you believed. It's the grace of the gospel. We see this in verse 16 of chapter 13. Look there. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. It's not anything to do with us that brings grace, but when you give the word of God and God energizes that word in the heart and life of a person, they're saved by grace. It's the only recourse. It's what sets a person free. When you feel the loss of your sinful condition on this scale, you begin to value saving grace on a greater scale. That's what's happening here. Remember verse 11, just some are given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. Grace is a gift. Your eyes being opened, your ears being unclogged is the gift of grace. Some have it and some will not have it. How does a lost person find grace? Grace is always activated by truth, by truth. Grace is what brings people around because you can see the truth and reject it, but grace opens the heart where a person goes, I believe, I see it. How much does someone believe the truth? Well, they see with such clarity that they're even seeing things more clearly than the prophets did. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, think of uh, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea. They all foresaw a veiled description of Christ. Christ described this in John 8 when he was talking to the Pharisees, verse 56. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day and he saw it and was glad. Abraham projected forward and saw a veiled description in his mind's eye of what the Messiah would be and what it would look like. But he didn't see it as clearly as we do today. We're up in the drone seeing all of redemptive history as we read the Bible, as we personally experience the living Lord, even this morning, walking with Jesus Praying things to Jesus, repenting to Jesus in your own heart as you come under his word and his teaching by the Holy Spirit today. You say, I would have wished that I could have seen Jesus physically on earth. Sure we would have. We would have loved to have repented to him face to face in that way. But whether you reject him as an Old Testament um, person, um, time period, or reject him face to face, or reject him today, all are tragic. And the answer is always the saving grace of the gospel. It comes to our heart by the word of God. It's the gospel that we see more clearly than even the prophets who prophesied. First Peter chapter 1 verse 10 talks about they were predicting something that was for us today. And it's what angels long to look at. They gawk at this. They, they're amazed at the grace that we experience in this day and age where we are with Christ and Christ is with us with such intimacy and clarity. Um, you see me with these reader glasses that I use. And one day I'll get contacts and I'll grow up and become a full human adult. But for now, I use these readers. And, you know, it. I can't, when I look down at my Bible, it looks like I just came up out of the water. I'm bleary-eyed, you know, with this um, vision. 
um, deficit. But when I put the glasses on, it's, you know, there's words and I can read with comprehension. That's the difference, like being unsaved and being saved, where you see Christ with clarity. You love him and you know him personally. The disciples in Matthew 13, 51, at the end of this whole parable study, Jesus says, have you understand all these things? And they said to him, yes. Mark 4, 34, he said, he did, it says he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. He opened their mind, Luke 24, 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It's the psalmist, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. Listen, the early church um, would have read this account just like we're reading it today. I think that's important to understand. Jesus had already been raised. He'd already ascended to the right hand of the Father. And the early church was given these gospels. And they read them. And this is the revelation of Jesus that they had. And it's what we have. This is the only true form of media that we should seek to know Christ from. There are other forms of media out there, stories, movies, shows, and things. That's all just superficial media. That's not scripture. Scripture is what we're illumined to see by the Holy Spirit, where we see Jesus in a powerful way, where we worship him for who he is by truth. This is the blessing of knowing Christ. There's the, those who are left in the cause of sin, and there are those who are cured by amazing grace. Um, I didn't mean to sow this seed um, before I asked the question, but what is the most popularly known and famous hymn within our culture? You agree it's Amazing Grace? Some of you might disagree. I mean, they're, they're sort of a top 10 list. Amazing Grace is a very popularly known hymn. A lot of people can quote it, even unbelievers all around. What's amazing to me is that in our critical race theory culture, in our, our culture of penance, where people are asking forgiveness who will never be forgiven for sins that they didn't commit. Um, you remember John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace? He was a slave trader. He was a captain of a slave ship. He became a believer and repented from those things. But um, he, you know, the fact that we can sing Amazing Grace in our culture today is truly amazing because it's like lyrics from a grandfather who are, who's saying what's wrong with the world truly wrong with the world, and the one thing that can make it right. It's a hymn that is transcending all these trends that are undermining um, people's souls and their God, you know, the gospel is um, clouded by these um, false teachings and false ideologies that are out there. And then over, over all of that, we can blanket it with the hymn, Amazing Grace. It says what's wrong and it says how things can be made right. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. Sin is the cause, and the cure is always grace. Amazing grace, unmerited grace, the favor of God in our lives. Next week, we'll look at um, a more detailed approach, looking at Jesus' explanation of the four soils and how the seed of the word of God is given. And that's the only means for people to come in contact with grace. The gospel is what gives people this grace.